So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, at the back of your Bibles. 2 Peter, chapter 1, we're looking at verses 3 through 11. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, right at the, near the very end of your Bible. Anyone have a page number in the Pew Bible for me? 1079? Yes. 1079? Yeah, okay. 1079, 2 Peter. So if you don't have a Bible, the black hardcover, you'll find it there, page 1079. Hear the words of the living God. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, you're speaking to us now. You've spoken to us through your word and your spirit is moving amongst us as your church has gathered, as your holy temple here this morning. We enjoy the presence of your Holy Spirit and we pray now for your divine power to share your nature with us, to open our eyes, to see your majesty, to open our hearts to grasp and desire and feel your goodness. Break us free from the attraction of lies, the attraction of sin. Confirm our election, we pray. Show us yourself and change us, we pray. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing except waste our time. So guard our minds, take every thought captive to Christ. For those who are not Christian, we pray that you would open their eyes to Christ, that they might be saved. And for those who are, we pray that you might lead us into a deeper experience of you. For those who are comfortable and presumptuous about their faith, we pray that you would shake them. And for those of us here who are discouraged, we pray that you would encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine what it would be like 
what it will be like when you enter the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. What is it going to be like when you enter the kingdom? Not day one, I'm talking about minute one. The first minute that you're entering into the fullness of God's kingdom. The new creational kingdom of God. Let me read to you what the Bible says about the new creational kingdom. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is what it's going to be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Imagine that. No sin, no selfishness, no envy, no self-centeredness, perfect love, a perfect environment, perfect weather, perfect bodies, no decay, and God face to face. Revelation 22, I'll give you another description. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. Anyone here need healing? And there will, be no long, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. There's no place like home. I feel that being gone for 12 days in the Philippines and coming back, there's no place like home. But this world is not our home. What I just read to you is our home. And we will be there soon. Every Christian wants to be there. Imagine what it'll be like when you enter into the new kingdom in its fullness. What a joy. Now, the problem is that we will inevitably have some in our midst, in our church, in our 97 members of Bethany Baptist Church, we will inevitably have some who profess faith in Christ, yet will at some point fall away from the living God and prove to not really be Christian. We will have some who don't enter into this kingdom. And that's a problem because we love each other, don't we? We want to see every one of our members there. We want to see everyone who says they're a Christian actually be there celebrating and reigning with Christ forever. And so we fear for them. I fear for them. We're concerned. We're maybe even tempted to worry about some of the people in our church. And if we're quite honest, we just look in the mirror and think about our own sin in our own lives and we might start to fear for ourselves, right? What about me? Am I really a Christian? If people do fall away and if there are false professions of faith, if there are fake Christians, and if there are Christians who really sincerely think they're Christians and yet are not really Christian, how do I know that I'm not one of them? We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to fear for others, and we don't have to fear for ourselves. Peter shares this concern in Second Peter. This is his last letter before he's about to die. 
we, we talked about that January 5th when I preached here, <clears throat> that Peter says, I'm about to depart. I'm about to lay up my tent. It says in chapter one, I'm going to die and I want to remind you of some things. And so now Peter guides us on how to prepare to make it to the end because he's not there to hold the hands of his people anymore. So he says, hey, I'm about to die and I'm concerned about you that you might not make it. So let me tell you some things to help you to get there and to help each other get there and to eradicate any fear or alarm that you might feel. So the main goal is from verse 10. Look at verse 10. Here's the main command. Therefore, brothers and sisters, here's the command. Make every effort to what? Confirm your calling and election. So the main goal that I wrote down here in my notes is confirm your calling and election. That's the main goal. You need to make your calling and your election confirmed to be more literal of the translation. Confirm your calling and election. If you say that you are called by God, if you say that God has called you to Christianity and to Christ, if you say that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world to be one of his people, among his people, for all eternity, then confirm it. Confirm it. That's the main command. So to unpack this passage and this command, we have two points or two headings. The command defined and the command designed, okay? The command defined, let's define this command in verses three through seven. And then let's, let's think about the design of the command, the, the purposes of the command in verses eight through 11, okay? So the command defined and the command designed. Let's look first at the command defined in verses three through seven. I read you the command, I'll read it to you again in verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, Bethany Baptist Church, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Confirm your calling and election. And don't just confirm, don't just make sure that you're saved. Prove it. Confirm it to yourself. Confirm it to those around you. And don't just confirm it once. Make every effort. Don't do this half-heartedly. Part-time. Sundays only. Confirm your calling, make every effort. What do you make every effort for? There's, everyone here has a main treasure, a main ambition that they take every effort and focus it towards that one ambition. For the Christian, it's every effort to confirm our calling and election. What does he mean by calling? Here this calling is not the call to all of the world. Anyone who comes to Christ and turns from their sins will be saved. That's a general call. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the call of the Christian. Do you remember Paul wrote, um, for those he predestined, for those he foreknew, in Romans 8, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. The call there is not an invitation to everyone. That's when God calls you from the dead the way he called Lazarus from the dead. You remember that story? Lazarus was dead for four days and Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. He called him. And by the very power of God's call, Lazarus became, Lazarus came to life. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, when you become a Christian, God said to you when you became a Christian, you heard the gospel maybe for the hundredth time. And in that hundredth time you heard it, God said, let there be light. Or to use Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4, let light shine out of the darkness in PJ's life. And light shone... And I became a Christian. 
I turned from my sins. I heard the call of the good shepherd and I came to Christ and trusted in him. That's my calling. That's your calling if you're a Christian. And Peter's saying, confirm that. If you really are a Christian, then confirm it, prove it, show it. That's the calling. So confirm not only your calling, but your what? In verse 10, your what? Look at verse 10, confirm your calling and election. Election. What is the election? This is not you choosing God. This is God choosing you. God has chosen those whom he would save from eternity past. God knows all things past, present, and future. He has elected. He has chosen who would be his people. God knows those he's chosen, but we can't know who he's chosen. Right? We can't know who he's chosen. We don't have a special mark on our head. Um, We don't have the Wakandan tongue. You know, the Wakandan tongue, if you've seen the Black Panther, pull out your tongue and there's a glowing thing that's like the Chuck E. Cheese stamp that they put on your hand that glows with a black light, right? You get that on your tongue and that shows you're a real Wakandan. You can't, you can't, um, there's no, there's no mark on your body or a way you walk that shows that you're a Christian. We don't have those marks to confirm your election that God chose you. We have two marks but they're imperfect. But there's two marks. You know what they are? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the marks that show a Christian those who've been baptized in the water. Well, there's a thing behind here for those who don't know. It's a baptistry back here. Those who've been immersed in the water to show. That's that's one sign and that happens one time. And then what's the other one that shows regularly? What's a regular other marker? It's not the tongue. It's the bread and the, and the cup, right? Those who drink the cup, those who eat the bread, that is the public marker of their calling and election. But the problem is, we're still, that hasn't solved the problem because people get baptized who aren't really Christian, right? That happens. People take the Lord's Supper who aren't really Christian. That happens. People join the church and become members of Bethany Baptist Church who aren't really Christian. That happens. So how do we confirm this calling and election? If baptism and the Lord's Supper are the signs, but it doesn't really guarantee that those ones are are the ones who are chosen, how do you confirm this election? Maybe it's by, by praying the sinner's prayer every day. Accept Jesus into your heart every day just to make sure you're called. Maybe it's by joining a church because church membership is the way, right? No, it's not by those. Maybe take communion more regularly. Maybe we should take communion every week. Wait, we already take communion every week. Maybe we should take it more often. Maybe I should get baptized a few more times. Or maybe I should be attending church more consistently and giving more money, and that will confirm my calling. How do you make sure that you're called? Well, we're going to go to verses 3 through 7 for this. There's two tasks that Peter gives us in verses 3 through 7 to make sure we're called. As we define the command, let's go to verses 3 through 7. But one more thing. I need to give you an analogy here. These two tasks that are the way that we confirm our calling, this is a, I'm going to call it a surface task, and a foundational task, okay? 
a surface task and a foundational task, and you need, you need to do both. So here's my analogy. If you needed to come to church today, if the goal was go to the church gathering this Sunday, then most of you, the surface task would be, at least those who drove, would be that you get on the driver's seat and you step on the gas pedal and you steer your car over here. That's the surface task. The foundational task is putting gas in the car so that the engine propels your vehicle forward. Or, if you have a battery-powered car, charge your battery. That's a foundational task, right? If you don't do the foundational task and you have no gas in the tank and you have no battery, you have no um, charge to your battery, you could step on the gas pedal and steer all you want. You're not going anywhere, right? If you only have the surface task. But if you only have the foundational task of gas in your tank or charge in your battery, but you, have, you don't step on the gas and move your steering wheel, are you going to get here? No, you need both. But one is more foundational and one is more on the surface, okay? You need the foundational to do the surface task. So Peter gives us two tasks here to confirm your calling. One is a surface task and one is a foundational task. Let's go to the surface task first. And that's in verses five through seven. How do I, Peter, how do we confirm our calling and election? Peter's going to tell us, make every uh, effort, same, same phrase, make every effort, to supply or supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So how do you, what's the surface task to confirm your calling? By supply, how do we do it? By supplying your faith with the chain of virtues. Okay, that's a service task. How do I confirm my calling and make sure that I'm a Christian and, and my members make sure that I'm a Christian? How do I confirm it to myself and to the church family? By adding to your profession of faith the chain of virtues that's listed here. Let me give you a word on this chain before we go through them one by one. What's the importance of this order? I don't think the order in and of itself is super important, as best I can tell. The first one is important and the last one's important. What's the first one in verse five? What's the first one? Well, before goodness, what are you adding it to? Faith. The most important, I mean, the, the foundational thing is faith. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in God's word, you, you could add everything else. It doesn't matter, right? Faith, if you don't believe in the goodness of God, it, nothing else matters. So that, that is the first one. And the capstone of all virtues is the last one. Verse seven, what's that? Love. Love. Okay, so I think the first one is important in that order and the last one's important. Now the ones in the middle are not like their, their steps because things get mixed up here. What I think is going on in the middle is that he's, you know, um, um, you know how you could go too hard in one direction that you need to swing the pendulum the other way? So for example, if we're saying you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so we keep emphasizing that, then some people might say, so Christians don't, don't need to do any good works in any sense. Well, they don't need to to be justified, but do Christians need to do good works? Yes. So if you just say faith alone, you could go over here and you're like, hold on, hold on. Before you do that, come back this way. You got to do good works because God predestined your good works. But wait, hold on, don't go too far over here because if you do, then you're gonna, you know, and so it's like, so I think with this chain, it's like, here's faith, but don't go so far here that you're actually forgetting that there's goodness. Does that make sense? 
So I think every, because he's not saying add to your faith these seven or whatever. He's saying add to your faith goodness and add to your goodness, um, what is it? Add to your goodness, knowledge. And so I think the, what, the additional thing is not for the whole thing. It's for the previous one to keep you from going too far in one direction. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go through these one at a time. So work hard to supply your faith with what? Virtue or goodness. In other words, if you say, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, I believe in him, but you don't do any good, there's nothing good in you, and you're not growing in virtue and goodness, then your faith is what? What does James say? Faith without works is dead. Your faith is dead. You're not a real Christian. If you just say you believe, but there's no goodness supplementing it, it's just an empty profession. But goodness, okay, so I'm going to do good things then. Hold on, doing good things, but add to your goodness what? Supply your goodness with knowledge because good intentions and a sincere desire for others' good might lead to undiscerning harm if you don't have knowledge. That's why Paul prays in Philippians 1 verse 9 that, you would grow, that your love would abound in knowledge and discernment because love by itself, good intentions are not good enough. It's like, I love my children, so every time they ask for candy and I want to make them happy, Every single time they ask for candy, I'm going to give them candy. And every time I'm about to discipline them, then they say, no, no, Abba, no, Dad, don't spank me. Okay, I won't spank you. If I did that every single time because I wanted to be good to them, would I be good to them? No, you need to add knowledge to goodness. You need to know what's actually good for them, right? So goodness is not good enough. You need knowledge, You need to know truth. You need to know Bible. You need to know what truly is good. You need to be discerning. But is knowledge enough by itself? No. So supply knowledge with what? Self-control. How many times do we know better than we live? I mean, we know what's right, but how, I mean, how sufficient has that knowledge been to actually help us? I mean, how many of, am I the only, maybe this was the most convicting one for me is the self-control one. Learning the Bible, knowing a lot is not good enough. Christian maturity is not knowledge alone. You must supplement or supply your knowledge with self-control. Curse those peanut M&Ms in my pantry. I know that they're not good for me. But I had a lot of leftovers from the Philippines. And so they're just in that jar. And they're colorful. Why do they make them colorful? I know why they made them colorful. It's to attract you. And so I know that I shouldn't just be, every time I walk past the pantry, just handful, put in my mouth as I go on to the next thing. I know it's not good for me, but I have lack self-control until I started studying this passage and I've been doing a better job of passing by most of the time without grabbing a handful of M&Ms. But knowledge of it is not enough. So curse those M&Ms in my pantry. Curse the smartphone and the internet because we know we shouldn't be spending as much time as we do, Right? but we do it anyways. Curse the warmth of a bed and blanket when we get lazy and sleep in. We know that we should get up, but knowledge without self-control isn't good enough. Curse the power and ease of a mind wandering and fantasizing about a different life and a different world and coveting the, the things that people have around us. It's so easy to know what I should think and not have self-control over it. Brothers and sisters, if you will confirm your calling, Supply your knowledge with self-control. God, we know better. Please give us self-control.
Now, self-control enough. Great, I have self-control. I passed over the M&Ms one time. Is that good enough? No, supply your self-control with what? Endurance. And I hate that because I was like, all right, I'm applying it. Nope, you can't just pass over it one time. Right, you're like, I'll pass over this time because next time I'm going to get those M&Ms. That's not self-control for one moment and then losing control the next 20 moments. That self-control is worthless, right? New Year's resolutions, how are you guys doing with your self-control? You're, you're resolved, right? Someone thinks you're going to change in your life. You knew what to do. You had self-control for January 1st. But did you endure? Self-control needs endurance for the long haul. Now, is endurance good enough? No, endure, you need to supply your endurance with what? Godliness. Why? Because if you are, if you are so knowledgeable and you're so self-controlled, and you endure, and you see other members who don't, what are you going to feel towards them? Pride? Self-righteous? You're going to look at them condescendingly? You're going to look down on them? Why can't you be self-controlled like me? I exercise every day. Why don't you? What? You, you can't watch what you eat? What? You, you spend your time? Ben preached last week on buying back the time. You're wasting time? How dare you? And so we would self-righteously look down on others who don't have our virtues. So what do we add to our endurance? Godliness. In other words, we're here to please who? God. It's about loving God. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Godliness is not about being better than other people. It's not about looking down on other people because you're more virtuous than them. It's about pleasing God. So don't just endure. Be godly. Be so saturated and enamored with the greatness and beauty and the goodness and the value of God that you don't care about what other people think. Add to your endurance godliness. And if you thought that was enough because that's the greatest commandment, he says, no, godliness is not enough. You know what you need to supply with your godliness? What's the next one? Brotherly affection. Because we could be so enamored with God that I'm thinking, I don't even care about BBC. I don't care about my church family. All I care about is God. So I read my Bible all day and I write about what I'm learning from the Bible. And church members ask, hey, can you read the Bible with me? I have this issue. Can you help me with it? Hey, how can I pray for you? I don't have time for you. I'm, I'm, I'm spending time with God. If I, if I never talk to any member of this church because I'm always spending time with God, am I pleasing God? No, you're not. You can, you can read your Bible in sin. Did you know that? It could be a sin to read your Bible. Now I gotta qualify this, okay? It would be a sin for me to read my Bible when my wife needs my help in disciplining the kids. It could be a sin to read my Bible when, or let me just be more explicit. If one of my family members or any of our church members has a, has a, a serious accident and they have a gash and they're bleeding out and they're gonna die and you need to take them to the ER. You're like, hold on, I'm not done with my devotions. I need to read my Bible. I just got started. I got 30 more minutes. Then I'll come because I love God first with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see how you can be so focused on God in a sense that you're actually sinning against God? That happens. So what do you add to your godliness? Brotherly what? Affection. Care for the brothers and sisters of your church. If you don't care for the brothers and sisters of your church, you're not honoring God. So add to your godliness brotherly affection. Now, some of us, I hope most of us, most of us love our church family. 
Most of us love our church family. Um, but it's, it's harder to love our non-Christian family and our coworkers and our neighbors and our classmates and our friends. For some of you, you sometimes secretly wish that every day was Sunday because God does pour out grace on the church gathered Sunday morning and Sunday night. But it cannot be Sunday only. Every day cannot be Sunday. It can't just be about brotherly affection. Add to your brotherly affection what? What's the last one? Add to your brotherly affection what? Love. And love, it's not just your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is for who? For everybody. Love your neighbor as yourself. You mean, and then Jesus even said, don't just love those who love you and bless those who bless you. Love your enemies. It's not enough to love your church family. You need to love your enemies. You need to love your neighbors. You need to love your coworkers. You need to love your boss. You need to love your classmates. You you need to love the other political party. You need to love everybody. Loving your brothers only and godliness is not enough. So you see how what, what Peter's doing is, he's saying, if you really are a Christian, if you're really called, if you're really chosen, then don't just say it and say you have faith. Add to your faith goodness, and add to your goodness knowledge, and add to your knowledge self-control, and add to your self-control endurance, and add to your endurance godliness, and add to your godliness brotherly affection, and add to brotherly affection love. And if you're gonna if you're gonna make every effort to do this, then how often do you need to add these things to your life? How often? Every day, all the time. In other words, the point of all of this is keep growing as a Christian. Don't be stagnant. Don't lag behind. Keep adjusting your Christian life. If you're not growing, you might not be a Christian. One of the ways you confirm your calling and your election is by growing, making every effort to grow. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you might say, PJ, Christians are not this list. Loving, brotherly affection, self-controlled. They might think they have knowledge. But Christians are hypocrites. I mean, the Christians I know are a bunch of hypocrites. They say the one thing, they go to church and they put on a face, but then when they're out in the world throughout the week, they're not who you think they are, PJ. Christians are hypocrites. And so I could never be a Christian. If that's you, let me say a few things just briefly. Number one, I'm sorry for how Christians might have hurt you and have been hypocritical around you. We admit that. That's true. It happens. So I don't want to make excuses for Christians. We just want to apologize and say sorry. Secondly, you're right. Christians aren't perfect. But according to 2 Peter, Christians are not going to be perfect. They're commanded to grow because of our hypocrisies and inconsistencies. Third, Jesus hates hypocrisy more than you. And the Bible hates hypocrisy more than you. And so Jesus and the Bible and even Second Peter right here in Second Peter, he's calling out fake Christians as well. So you're right to despise fake Christianity. Jesus despises it more than you do. Fourthly, the answer is not to reject Christianity but because there's hypocrites. I would say that the answer is to actually go deeper into true Christianity. And fifthly, 
even non-Christians are hypocrites, aren't they? You don't have to be a Christian to be a hypocrite. You just have to be human. So I want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, to come to Jesus, who will forgive you of your sins and empower you out of hypocrisy as he's empowering us. More on that later. So that's the, that's the surface task, okay? So the surface task is to grow in your faith, okay? That's a surface task. What's the foundational task? What empowers this growth? Verses three and four. And why I'm saying this empowers it is because verse five begins with for this very reason. So um, verses three and four gives you the foundational task. What's the gas tank? What's the filling of the gas tank? Look at verse three with me. Three and four. God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. So what's the foundational task to confirming your election? Confirm your election by not only, not only by supplying your faith, but secondly here, second task, confirm your, your, your election by knowing Christ and trusting his promises. By knowing Christ and trusting his promises. Let's break that down as we walk through these verses. Um, let's take some time. Look at verse three. Question for you. What has given us everything needed for life and godliness? Say it out loud. What has given us everything needed for life and godliness? His what? His divine power. God's divine power. How powerful is God? Infinitely powerful, right? There's no limit. He's limitlessly powerful. There's no limit to God's power. And God's power has given you what? What is it given us? Everything we need for life and godliness. So, so when we say his divine power, who has given it to us? God has. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Whenever I study the Bible, especially for preaching, I try to pray and ask God, what's one thing that I don't believe about this text? Where are you convicting me of my sin? And the word everything convicts me. That God has given me everything we need for life and godliness because I don't believe that all the time. There are some other things I think I, God needs to give me before I can actually enjoy life and be godly in my situations. And this text is saying God has given us everything for life and godliness. And what specifically among these things, because of his glory and goodness, what has he given us in verse four? By his glory and goodness in verse four, what has he given us? Very great and precious, say it. Promises. By God's own glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises. What promises? Well, let me read to you one. Promises like the promise God promised Israel when they went to Babylon. Jeremiah prophesied that they would go to Babylon and then God gave them this promise. And this promise counts for us too. Listen to this. One of my favorite promises in all the Bible. So I just chose my favorite. Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41. God says, I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them. And with, I love this part about God because we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, right? This is what God says. I will take delight in doing good to them and with all my heart and mind, 
I will faithfully plant them in this land. What a promise. That God will never stop doing good to his people. That he will make an everlasting permanent covenant with me, with us. That he would never turn away from us. That we would never turn away from him. That God would actually be happy to do good for unfaithful Bethany Baptist Church. And that God would do it with all of his heart and all of his mind. God's not half-hearted in doing good to his people. He goes 100% all the time. And he will plant them in his place. Now, we are his place right now, the temple, but in the new earth to come, he's going to plant us in his place. Now, through God's promise of himself in the new covenant that's fulfilled in Christ, God is for his people and for their good. And in every moment, with all that God is, both now and into eternity, God will be good to you. There's not one moment in your life where God hasn't been good. Not one. Think of the worst moments in your life if you're a Christian. The hardest moments in your life. There's not one millisecond where God has not been good to you. He has not stopped doing good to you. And there's not one moment in your life where God wasn't doing good to you with all of his mind and all of his heart. He only always does good to you. Now, these promises are secured to us through the gospel. Look at chapter one, verse one. This is not to everyone. This is to those who have received what? One, one, to those who received a faith equal to ours through what? Through the righteousness of our God and savior. What's his name? Jesus Christ. In other words, God promises goodness. The very great and precious promises of God being for us and not against us are all for us because the righteousness of who? Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's because of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, please forget everything else I said and remember this. This is the gospel. This is the message of Christianity. That God is holy and he created us to enjoy him. God is the creator, but God is also the judge. Because we have sinned and rebelled against him, God will judge us in hell forever for our sins. We are damned eternally for our sins to eternal death because of our rebellion and sin. God is not only creator, God is judge, but God is also Christ. God sent his son, who's also God, very God. God the son came in flesh, became a man, lived the life we should have lived, died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead so that everyone who repents from their sins and trusts in Jesus will be saved. God is the king who rose from the dead. God is the king who defeated Satan, sin and death. God is the king who will grant rebels forgiveness and citizenship and power to live for him. So if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, the king, who died for sinners and rose from the dead and you'll be saved. If you do trust in Christ and turn from your sin, God will only and always be good to you and the very great and precious promises will be applied to you as well. Now what comes to these great and precious promises? Look at verse four. Through these promises, you may share in the what? Through God's precious promises that God is for you and not against you, you share in what? The divine nature. What does that mean? That you share in the divine nature. It does not mean that we slowly become gods. That as God shares more with PJ, PJ is slowly becoming a god. And that everyone he shares his divine nature with, that all of us are slowly becoming gods. That's not what it means. 
or that we're becoming partial gods, half gods, like Hercules, right? Half God and half man. So there's not a change in our ontological nature, our makeup, our being. We don't become triune, three in one. God is triune, we're not. So God's not sharing his triune nature with us. What is he sharing with us? It's his moral perfections. But he is sharing an aspect of his triunity, namely oneness. We become one in Christ, we become one with one another, and we love and celebrate God in the Trinitarian party forever. And we reflect that triunity in our church unity now and forever. So God doesn't share with us changing our being and making us triune, but he shares aspects of his holiness, aspects of his goodness, the communicable attributes of God, if you like, for those who are um, the shareable attributes of God. Not all God's attributes are shareable or communicable. God is omnipresent, will never be everywhere all the time. God is all-powerful, we will never be all-powerful. But God will share with us some power for holiness and joy and gladness. So how do you share in the nature of, of God? God shares his nature with you by Christ and the Spirit when, when God transforms you. When God lives in you, when Christ lives in you, you, you share in that divine nature. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, we all with unveiled faces, beholding in the image, or looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So when, this comes from the Lord the Spirit. So here's what it is. God the Father sent the Son. God the Son is exalted as King. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we see Christ in his glory. And when you see the Son, you have seen the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you see the Son again and again and again, you are transformed into the glory of the resurrected Son. See that? And that's how you share in the divine nature, by sharing in the glorified Christ. You're made holy, loving, wise, joyful, righteous, jealous, jealous in a good way, holy jealousy, passionate, zealous, and thoughtful. And what's the result? What happens when you share in this divine nature? Look at verse four. When you share this divine nature through the promises, what, what's the result? You're escaping what? The corruption that's in the world because of evil desire. You escape the corruption of the world. You escape falling away from God. You escape the corruption of evil desires. Do you feel a wrestling with evil desire in your life? I do. Wrestling with temptation and sin. I hope you confess to your accountability partners. When I was in the Philippines, I sent an email to some of my accountability partners just saying, brothers, pray for me. Send it to my wife as well. Pray for me. There are evil desires that need to be killed. And it's still here. I've been a Christian since 1989 and it's still here. They change. The forms and temptations change, but the evil desire is still here. And I need to escape this evil desire. How do I escape this evil desire? By sharing in the divine nature. How does that help? Well, when you share in God's nature, by Christ and the Spirit and the Father living in you, and by Christ transforming you into the image of the glorified Son, the God-man, you are being made more holy. You're being made more loving, more wise, joyful, righteous, zealous, jealous, passionate, and thoughtful. So much so that you love what God loves, and you hate what God hates. And the evil desire weakens, and in some cases, it completely breaks. 
Are there some things in your Christian life that you have no desire for anymore that you used to desire when you weren't a Christian? It's not even a temptation anymore. Like you have zero desire for that thing. You know why? Because God has shared his divine nature with you. That's God in you. Breaking the desire so that you escape the evil desire of the corruption of this world. And this doesn't happen one time. It continually happens and increasingly happens as you grow and share in Christ. So the foundational way of confirming your calling is by sharing in this divine nature, right? Because you can't add to your faith, uh, what is it, faith, um, goodness and goodness, knowledge and knowledge, self-control and self-control. You can't add any of that. You add nothing if you don't share in Christ. If you don't share in the divine nature, you have zero power to kill any evil desire in your life. You can only switch from, if you're not a Christian, you can only switch from one evil desire to another evil desire. You can only have one God-ignoring desire to another God-ignoring desire to another God-ignoring desire to another God-ignoring desire, but you can't actually put God in the center of your life. But when God becomes the center of your life, you actually, sin actually loses power. It loses attraction. It loses desirability for true Christians. And that confirms your calling. Have you experienced that in some way, not in perfect ways? If you've never experienced that and you think you're a Christian, you might not be a Christian. I'm not saying you're gonna, all sin has gone, gone away. But if you haven't experienced any of the freeing power of loving God for God and just not desiring evil things that you used to desire, you might not have ever shared in the divine nature. You might not have been born again. And so Peter is saying, put gas in the tank. Actually, he's not saying put gas in the tank. Let me correct myself. Who puts the gas in the tank? Who gives us everything for life and godliness? Who gives us the very um, great and precious promises? Who's the one who shares his divine nature with us? Who does it? God. So God is putting the gas in the tank. Not us. But PJ, you said it's our foundational task. You said Peter gave us a foundational task, not God. So what's our foundational task? Well, before I get to that, let me just encourage you. If you're discouraged, if you're a discouraged Christian this morning, God's promises for you are based on his goodness, not your feelings of discouragement. So be encouraged. If you're weak and you feel no power in your Christian life over certain sins, it's not your strength, but God's power that will get you through. If you're stumbling or stubborn or you're stuck in a sin, God will break the power of sin in your life as he shares his nature with you. Keep going. Keep stumbling along. Keep getting back up. Keep confessing your sin. Keep going towards Christ with his people. God will get you through. Now, if God is the one who puts the gas in the tank, then what's the foundational task for us? The answer is in verse three. Look at verse three. This divine power for life and godliness, it comes through what? This divine power comes through what in verse three? Through the knowledge of him who called us. It comes through knowing God, knowing Christ intimately, personally. And your call, your fundamental task is to know Jesus. Know Christ. Read your Bible. Learn more about Christ. Know him because when you know Christ and you know that he's for you, not against you, that gives you power for the, for the surface task. When you know Christ and you know the gospel and you know that Jesus is for you, not against you, and you check and you realize that that's true, you now have the power for the surface task of adding to your faith. Does that make sense? So in other words, if God is the one filling the gas tank, what's your foundational task? 
Your foundational task is not to fill the gas tank. Your foundational task, this is how easy it is. Your foundational task is to check the fuel gauge. Look at the dashboard. Is the tank full or empty? That's your task. Is God for you or against you? Has God filled up your tank or not? Is God for you or against you? He's for us, right? Has God filled up and given you everything you need? Has he filled your tank for the surface task or has he not? Has he filled it, yes or no? Yes. But we don't believe that often, don't we? We think our tank is empty because we don't check. Or we see it and we don't believe it. Ah, something's wrong. You start banging on your dashboard. Ah, something's wrong with the gas gauge. It can't be full. God can't be for me. God can't have filled this tank up. And when you don't know Christ and believe that, what power do you have to step on the gas pedal and go and supply your, your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge and so forth? Okay? So the foundational task is check your gas tank. Know Christ. Realize he's for you and not against you. That's the application to you. Know God intimately. For church family, let's testify of God's goodness to each other and gospelize each other and remind each other, hey, guess what? Your gas tank is full. Just step on the gas. God is for you and not against you. Christ died for you and rose for you. Know him and trust him so that you could supply your faith and grow. If you're children here, children, listen up. Keep seeking Christ. You know how as a child it takes so long for your next birthday? And then when you're older, your birthdays just come so fast. Have you noticed that? The older you get, there's, there's a mathematical reason for that, which I won't explain here, though I'd love to. Um, but, but when you're a child, it takes a long time. Life seems to be going really slow. Your birthdays come really slow. So I want to encourage you children. Children, when you seem like you're not really changing, you are changing. You're like, but I always get angry at my brother. I always get angry at my parents when they tell me to do things. I just can't, I feel like I can't, I can't win. I can't grow. Children, listen, if you trust in Jesus, he's changing you. It's just really slow when you're young, just like slow birthdays. You can't feel it, but trust me and trust God. If you keep on seeking Christ, you will grow. And when you get older, you'll feel the benefits of growing as a kid. So children, trust in Jesus and keep going even when it feels like you're not changing. Okay, so confirm your calling election. That's the first one and the long one, as typical, right? The command defined. Let's look at the command designed. What's the design of the command? What's the, there's three purposes for the command. God commands us to confirm our calling and election. He gives us three purposes, and I'm going to go through these briefly. Number one in verses eight and nine. Confirm your calling, purpose number one, so that you won't be fruitless and forgetful. Look at verses eight and nine. For if you possess these qualities this chain of virtues, in increasing measure, if you're growing in them, they will keep you from being what? From what? Being what? Useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge is not enough. You need fruitful knowledge. Knowledge is not enough. You need useful knowledge. Look at verse nine. The person who lacks these things is what? What is he? Blind and short-sighted. So here's the first reason why you need to grow in these ways. Because if you, if you don't, you'll have useless knowledge. You'll be of no use to Christ and his kingdom. You'll have fruitless knowledge, meaning you'll bear no fruit. You're not abiding in the vine, Christ. And you're not bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You're not submitting to the Holy Spirit, but to the flesh. You're blind, which means you can't see. And not only are you blind, you're what? Short-sighted. What does it mean to be short-sighted? You know who's short-sighted? Kids are short-sighted, right? You tell them they're hungry and you say, okay, I'm cooking. 
I'm going to heat this up in the microwave, mac and cheese. It takes literally two minutes. And they're like dying. I can't take it anymore. I'm so hungry. When is the food coming? Like, dude, it's two minutes. Like, chill out, right? Why? Because they're short-sighted. All they can see is the next five seconds, right? There's no food in front of me. I'm going to die. That's what they think. That's their conclusion. There's no food in front of me. I'm hungry. It's not here in the next five seconds. I'm dying. I'm going to die. Because they're short-sighted. They, they can't see five minutes down the road. And you know what? When you're not growing in a Christian life, guess what? You're sh- short-sighted too. I'm living for my retirement. I'm living for my family. I'm living for my job. I'm living for my fame. I'm living for power. I'm living for my health. And you're so short-sighted that you're technically blind. I mean, you're, you're practically blind. I mean, Jesus says, if you want to save your life now, you're going to what? Lose it. That's short-sightedness. But if you lose your life now, what will you do? You'll save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That's short-sightedness. And when you're not growing in Christ, it's because you're being short-sighted. And not only that, there's one more thing here in verse 9. He has forgotten the cleansing of his past sins. And that cleansing is probably referring to baptism. Baptism symbolizes the washing of your sins away. And you've forgotten that you're baptized. You've forgotten that you're Christian. You forgot that you profess faith. And that's why you're not growing. So why do you need to confirm your calling? So that you won't be a fruitless and forgetful Christian. That's the first reason. Second reason why you should confirm your calling. Make every effort to confirm your calling. Verse 10, so that you won't stumble and fall away. So that you won't stumble and fall away. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Why? Because if you do these things, you will never, say it, you'll never stumble. Now, this stumbling doesn't mean, some people say, that means you'll never sin. Is that what it mean? Is that what it mean, that you, that you could actually never sin in this life? No. Brothers and sisters, understand this. You will always sin in this life. Until Christ comes or you die, you'll struggle with sin. He's not saying you'll never stumble, you'll never sin. What he means is you'll never fall away. This is like Jude 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and falling away. So how do you make sure that you're a Christian? How do you make sure that you don't fall away and prove to be a fake Christian, a false Christian, an apostate? How do you not apostatize? By confirming your calling, by the foundational, the surface task of growing in your faith and the foundational task of knowing Christ, that he's for you and not against you, that the gas tank is full. If you grow, you won't fall away. You won't be a fake Christian. But if you don't grow, you might fall away. You might prove that you're not really a Christian. One of my best friends, and I've told you this story many times, one of my best friends fell away, at least as of today, maybe not in the end. One of my best friends fell away from the faith. And it's not because of Bible knowledge only. It's because when you, don't, when you say you're a Christian, but you don't add goodness to your faith, and you don't add knowledge to that goodness, and you don't add self-control to that knowledge and endurance to that self-control and godliness to that endurance and brotherly affection to that godliness and love to the brotherly affection. When you stop adding those things, when you get lazy with your sin, when you stop repenting and you stop confessing your sin and you stop growing and taking God seriously in his holiness, you shrink. And so it's not only a false teaching that can wipe out your Christianity, it's compromise. 
It's you being comfortable with your sin and not repenting and pretending to be somebody you're not. Partially. If you want to make sure you don't fall away, take every single sin you struggle with seriously. Don't relax on any of them. Grow and supply your faith. All right, the third one. So first reason why you should, um, the, the design of the command, confirm your election so that you won't be fruitless and forgetful. Secondly, confirm your calling so that you don't fall away. And thirdly, look at verse 11, last verse. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Thirdly, confirm your election so that your kingdom entry will be provided for you. So that your, this, the words are very important here. So that your kingdom entry will be provided for you. If you confirm your election, does that mean you earned your entry? That you earned your salvation? No. If you do this, through this, through your confirming of your election, Kingdom entry will be what? Provided for you. And we, when it's provided for you, given to you, we call that grace. You don't earn kingdom entry. God gives it to you. But he gives it to those who believe in Christ, that's initial salvation, and then continual salvation as they continue to grow in Christ for final salvation. And if you don't go through that, you're not really Christian. You don't get kingdom entry provided for you. So by confirming your election, God richly provides you with entry into the kingdom. It doesn't mean that you earn it. It doesn't even mean that you prove that you're a Christian. It means that God uses your growth in grace as the, as the doorway, as the, as the hallway to the entry. So imagine you get saved and you're walking through a long hallway and at the end of the hallway, there's the kingdom entry. That hallway is your growth in grace. And you go through it as the way to the entry. So it's not earning it. It's not, it's not even proving. That's good theology that good works prove your salvation. But that's not what it's talking about here. It's the means through which you enter the kingdom of heaven. So let me give a church application, then I'll close. Church application. BBC members, 97 members of Bethany Baptist Church, look up here. You, church members, need to expect the other 96 members to grow. You expect growth. In unhealthy churches, growth is an anomaly. Oh, wow, look, that Christian's growing. That's amazing. And they're few and far between. The odd fire Christians are only a few members of the church. In a healthy church that gets this, who should be growing? Everybody. Everyone should be on fire for Jesus. Everyone should be making every effort to confirm their calling. Every Christian should be making every effort to supply their faith with goodness and so on. So brothers and sisters, members of this church, expect your fellow members to grow. Don't look at that as a rare thing. It's a normal thing. You know what's abnormal? Not growing. A, a non-growing member of our church is abnormal, not normal. Expect that of each other. Expect them, expect them to grow by calling them to see Christ with you. And when they don't respond favorably and they don't seem to be growing, that doesn't mean you need to judge them. You need to be concerned about them and, and focus on helping them grow in Christ. All right, so clo to, to close now. So Peter wants to eradicate our fear of failing and our fear of other members of our church falling away. And he does it by saying, hey, brothers and sisters, confirm your election. Confirm your calling. Make every effort. Work hard. Push hard to confirm your calling. And he defines that as growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And he shows us the purpose of this command is to keep us from fruitlessness 
to keep us from falling away and to usher us into the kingdom. The words make every effort to confirm this calling is also convicting, right? We don't make every effort as we ought to make every effort. We don't strive to grow repeatedly. We get complacent. We don't pursue God intimately as we ought to. So what do we deserve? We deserve to fall away. We deserve to stumble. We deserve to show that we're not chosen by God, right? Because of our sins. Jesus, by contrast, has made every effort to confirm his calling and election. He made every effort to grow in wisdom and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew in love. Jesus pursued knowing God. Yet, when he was hanging on the cross, he was treated not like God's chosen son. He was treated like a rejected one, not one of God's children. God was, Christ was treated like one who rebelled, one who was morally blind by his pride and ignorance, one who was fruitless and useless to God. Actually, if the cross confirmed anything, it confirmed that that man hanging there was cursed. It wasn't a confirmation of his, of his election and calling. It was a confirmation that that man hanging on that cross is cursed by God. And he was cursed by God. But not because of his sin. Not because he failed to make every effort to confirm his calling and election, but because we have failed to make every effort to confirm our calling and election. So Christ dies for sinners. He dies for lazy Christians. He dies for complacent Christians. He dies for Christians who, who trip up along the way and, and need to be told a thousand times the same thing over and over before they grow. Christ died for us. Amen? Praise God that he died for us and then he rose from the dead and he now gives us the power to confirm that we are indeed chosen by God because he was chosen by God. On the cross, he didn't look like it, but when he rose from the dead, he confirmed that he was indeed chosen by God. He is God the Son and the King of the universe. And we too confirm our calling and unity with him by our pursuing growth and grace. So brothers, make every effort to confirm your election. Sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling. Now, let me close with one specific application. Choose one of these seven pairs, you know, like knowledge to self-control, self-control endurance. Choose one of the seven pairs and grow in it this week. Actually, maybe during our one-minute sharing, pick one of the pairs and share with the person beside you. You don't have to share that. You can share other things as well. But I want you to identify one of the pairs in verses five through seven and pray that you would know Christ in growing in one of those pairs. If you don't, if you don't grow, you will shrink, you will drift, and maybe even, God forbid, you will fall away and show you're not really a Christian. But if you grow, you'll grow in assurance, you'll encourage your church family, and you'll be ushered in by God himself into the kingdom. Imagine that, your first minute in the kingdom, smiling, enjoying God's presence. Jesus is coming soon. The kingdom in its fullness will be here soon. The church around the world prays, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and he is coming soon. So brothers and sisters, grow in such a way that your calling and your election is confirmed. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute to pray on your own and then I'll close.
Father, please share your divine nature with us more and more. Grant us faith in your precious promises that you're for us and not against us in Christ. And by your grace, grow us in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We want to know you more, Lord Jesus. And we want to grow in you. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.